Good afternoon, Rich Ness, Executive Vice President with Open Systems Media and leader of the Embedded Computing Design Franchise, here for this week's Embedded Executive. And this week, we're taking a little twist on the Embedded Executive. My guest this week is one of the most recognizable names, faces, voices in embedded systems, and that would be Jack Cancel. How you doing, Jack? Hey, Rich, I'm doing great. Uh, it's good to talk to you. It's been a while. It has been a while. And uh, you and I go back pretty far into the days of Embedded Systems, Embedded Systems Programming Magazine, the Embedded Systems Conference. Um, were you there at day one of the Embedded Systems Conference? Yeah, you know, the very first Embedded Conference was uh, 1989. And it was held at the Sir Francis Drake Hotel in uh, San Francisco, which was, I guess it still is a beautiful old hotel. And I remember, you hear the trolley cars outside all day long during the conference. It was a pretty small event, a few hundred people, but uh, great fun. And um, I mean, unfortunately, that uh, conference has pretty much tied off, but uh, it did grow to be huge and uh, still was even, th even when it got big, it was a ton of fun. We just see all the, the uh, usual suspects there. And uh, it, was, it was really nice to, to connect with everybody. So in 1989, how would you define leading edge technology? <laughs> 1989, we were talking about 16-bit uh, processors, okay. things like uh, Intel's 186, for example, which was, uh, they also had an 8-bit version, the 188. Uh, by today's standards, it was pretty laughable. That was a, it wasn't a microcontroller because microcontrollers were 8-bit truly brain dead things like 8051s and microchip picks. And uh, if we look at what's happened today, where you can buy a 32-bit uh, MCU that does everything for half a buck, it's a pretty incredible world we've built. So back then, I mean, we don't have to stick to 1989, but back 30 some odd years ago, what was the biggest challenge for an embedded developer? You know, back, back in the 1980s, Pretty much all of us were still working in assembly language. C had been around, but the tools were pretty awful. And uh, you know, most people didn't really even know C all that well. Assembly was a comfortable place to be, but it was a pretty inefficient way to design uh, and build products. Um, so people kind of <laughs> just toughed it out. The uh, tools were awful. Things like uh, there were no windows like we have today, windows graphical development environments. Everything was DOS-based. Uh, there are no symbolic debuggers. We we're working, everything was done in hex rather than with symbols. The uh, uh, tools, I mean, the uh, FPGAs that just barely come onto the scene, uh, they're total, very small devices. And those tools were awful. The Xilinx development tools were famous for just crashing all the time. They're practically unusable. And if you look at where we are today with um, FPGAs being very stable and very powerful is quite a change. What about documentation? And that seems to be a problem that was a problem 50 years ago. It's going to be a problem 50 years from now. Is Have you seen any change over the decade <laughs> with documentation? Yeah, you know, it's, so, it's actually sort of ironic. I think in a way, a lot of the documentation was better in the early days because the devices were simpler. There just wasn't that much to document. That's fair. I mean, today I'll, I look at some of these parts, so you get a 5,000 page data sheet and it's not complete. Um, you know, back in the olden days, the problem we had was that a lot of the parts were 
out of Japan. And um, you know, everyone here joked about the documentation being in Jinglish. Uh, it could be very difficult to to understand the intent of the uh, authors. Um, but like I say, a, a, a 20 or 30 page data sheet was enough to pretty well characterize the device. And uh, boy, that sure has changed. Well, one of the running jokes, which actually wasn't very funny, was that um, developers didn't document because um, that was their job security. If somebody else could come in and just pick up where they left off, that they didn't need that developer anymore. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't catch that, Rich. One of the running jokes, which actually wasn't very funny at the time, was, was that the developers wouldn't document their code because of job security. If you documented well, somebody else could just pick up where you left off. Well, I guess the joke was um, never comment your code because if you comment your code, they don't need you anymore. And right, uh, exactly. that certainly was a real problem then. And it hasn't really changed today. I talk to folks all the time today who tell me that, you know, they just write self-commenting code, which I think is um, sort of... Uh, Ludicrous. Um, is that a thing, self-documenting code? There are a lot of people who will believe it. Uh, I'm not one of them. Uh, I, I really think that uh, when we create any kind of a document, we should be creating sort of a narrative. Uh, the documentation is an English explanation of what it is we're trying to accomplish. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of us tend to think only in terms of ones and zeros and not with uh, translating our intent back into English. You know, it's kind of funny over my career, I've had pretty good success hiring English majors to write code. Really? Because, yeah, they, they need to be taught how to do some of the problem solving and the language, but they're very good at, at expressing complex ideas in concise ways. And when you think about it, that's really what programming is all about, is taking a complicated problem and boiling it down into its essence. And of course, the English majors tend to do a wonderful job of uh, uh, creating peripheral documentation to go with their code. Pretty interesting. You were always a big believer in agile development. Um, did that progress the way you would have expected? Well, I don't. Uh, <laughs> actually, I'm sort of iffy on agile. Uh, I think that um, the agile movement has got a lot of great ideas, but a lot of really bogus ideas too. I mean, to go back to what we're just talking about, Documentation seems to be, in many cases, a second thought. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of agile folks, not all of them by long shot, but a lot of them just don't believe in a whole lot of design. And uh, they want to create the product. And as Kent Beck, who's one of the leading advocates of it says, if you write enough code, a design will emerge from the code. And that might be true if you're doing web design stuff, I wouldn't know. But for embedded, we usually have to have a pretty good idea of what we're doing. I mean, if you don't know where you want to go, which is what the design is, you're never going to get there. And uh, people complain that good design is very expensive, and they're right. But it sure is. If you think, or if you think good design is expensive, try bad design. That's very true. Very true. So the upcoming developers, you know, the the young guns. What advice would you offer to somebody who's just starting out in this field? <laughs> you know, uh, when young engineers ask me that, I always go way off topic. And the first thing I tell them is save money. 
If you have money in the bank, you are, you are in control of your destiny. If you don't have money in the bank, you will be a slave to a job. The second thing I always tell these folks is um, never stop learning. This field, the joke is that this field changes every two years. And that's, that's really bogus. It's not true. I mean, um, you know, when we, you and I were back in EE school, we learned about things like uh, circuit analysis, Kirchhoff's law, and all of that. And those electromagnetics, which is so important today in digital design. And those things haven't changed at all. But a lot of stuff does change. And uh, I see too many developers who graduate and then kind of wind up in kind of a rut and just keep doing things or try to keep doing things the same way for the rest of their career. And that's, um, that, that's a guaranteed way to fail. My, before we started, I mentioned that my dad was involved with Apollo. He worked at Grumman during the uh, lunar uh, module days. He was a mechanical engineer. He told me that one of the engineers there was the world's expert at designing wheels for lunar roving vehicles. And I thought, man, when Apollo imploded in 1970, where did this guy get a job? <laughs> very interesting. That's a very interesting thought. Huh. Well, I know you're somebody who's had, um, you, you, you always seem to be like a free agent. I, I don't, you know, from, from the time I've known you, I don't, remember you ever being an employee of a company. You were always <laughs> part of your own thing and it's worked out very well for you, obviously. Yeah, I, uh, I, my last real job, I guess, was in 1980 and I was running a digital design department back at the, a, a normal corporation then. But after that, I, after that, I struck out on my own and started uh, uh, several companies and uh, went up selling those. And what I found was that um, it was very creative building a company. It's very uh, challenging because uh, you're dealing with people issues all the time. And it's not like dealing with a system. I mean, if you take a computer system, if you perturb it five times the same way, you'll get five identical responses. If you perturb a person five identical ways, you get five different responses. So it's a challenge to do that, but it's also very satisfying. But around 19, I guess 1997, I sold my tools company and decided, I tried retiring for, uh, I think it was a day and I was bored <laughs> in tears. So um, I started doing, you know, lecturing and writing and whatnot. And uh, the nice thing about that was that I had my own schedule. I didn't have uh, to show up anywhere for anything. And uh, I really enjoyed that. But now I'm an old man. And I've uh, pretty much retired, and uh, that's pretty nice in itself. Okay. So to wrap up, some of the things that are really popular now are things that didn't exist back in the day when when you and I were doing this mainstream, like Python and Rust. Have, have you dabbled in things like that at all? And what do you think? Does it really make somebody's life easier? Uh, yeah, I have. I find it all very interesting, and uh, I think that. Uh, Going back to your question about advice for advice for young developers, uh, learning new languages is critical. Uh, C is basically an, an antique. I mean, I, I love C; it's great, but it's basically just a super duper assembly language, and it will get replaced at some point. Python, I think, is interesting. I don't think it uh, applies to a lot of real embedded work because it's interpreted. It has uh, those issues. 
I see it being used very successfully though in building test harnesses and whatnot for embedded systems. Rust is a little different. Rust is um, being promoted as a replacement for embedded languages for C, C++. And I think it offers a lot of really great features. Um, I'm a little wary today of Rust. And uh, one of the big reasons for that is that, you know, with um, embedded systems last forever. If you build, for example, systems for the railway industry, you have to guarantee support for 30 years. And uh, C, C++, they have ANSI standards. In 30 years, you'll be able to get a compiler that compiles today's dialect, most likely. Rust doesn't have a standard. And I'm, I'm afraid that uh, the, its stability is certainly up in the air. It might be great. We just don't know. So it's a it's risk. It's a risk. It's potentially risky, and um, one thing that engineers sometimes forget is that every decision we make is ultimately a business decision. And if we are making a decision for the business where it, it's risky to use a language because we might not be able to support it in five or ten years, you know that might not be the best business decision we can make. And for a very good reason, most embedded companies are very risk averse because you. Some of these applications, automotive, medical healthcare, you just can't have a failure. Yeah, no, um, when I was young, people always said engineers tend to be very conservative and uh, they would use that, that magic C word, not uh, talking about politics, which is so charged today. But I think we are conservative in that we want to uh, uh, design systems that are reliable over wide temperature ranges, uh, humidity, whatever it might be. So when somebody says, hey, I can use this nice new shiny widget, it's uh, reasonable for an engineer to say, wow, that's a really cool shiny widget, but can I buy it in two years? Does it really work properly? Has it been characterized? Um, and those are those conservative decisions I think are wise. Sounds like pretty sage advice from a pretty <laughs> sage guy. <laughs> well, thank you. I think. Um, uh, a lot of this is just basically looking at fundamentals. Absolutely. That was Jack Gansel. And as you know and heard in the beginning, he is um, one of the, the godfathers of our embedded industry. Is that fair? <laughs> I know you disagree because you're also one of the most <laughs> humble people I've ever met, but um, it, is, it is definitely true. So thank you, Jack, for spending some time with us. Thanks, Richard. It's great talking to you.